for your birth and original ragga soca number one Saadi sit a shorty Inside the party Looking real naughty Winding up she did her body I said come on over Come let me show ya Keep winding that waistline If you tell me your name I'll tell you my Bad man talking Girlfriend, why you stand up over there? Not only me, everybody in a the dance has there Big fight up look out in the dance when you are there Them man as well was see but you not care Shorty, I wanna get with you I see you nice, girl, pretty and cute Me no make no other choice, girl, me give you this salute Pretty girl in a me like me, why you bring forth me out? Senorita, please tell me your name I really would like to dance with you again, boy You know I want it, you know I want it I got to have it The party hey, looking real naughty, winding up she did her body. I said, Come on over, come let me show ya. Keep winding that waistline. If you tell me your name, I'm gonna watch your good sexy body. Sweet baby face, anyway, you got me. See all them and them a trace, so they do anything. Just to get your home at them base. Them tell me what you want, just like me. But for them, girl, your time now, but waste cars. I know where she wants you. I'm look good, me say, You know that she that. I walk on the street, oh man, you looking at your teeth In a tight shot, I don't expose your body Oh man, now I got you look for right here, see me got it I'm not chatty, chatty, are you?
and to the background of blaring trumpets and Latin music. The last set of music that you were just dished out contained the following. A song called Quinto Yamato by Carlos Mbale. Then before that, a song called Sang Kumong. Then an unfortunately truncated version of Tree of Life by Osin Lade. Then the song Senorita by Truths and Ice. Then Fiona by Andy Brown and the Storm. And then Ethereum by Evolve Now. And that set started out with Paris by Miss Jane Powell. Well, that just about does it for me. But please stay tuned because at 4.30, the Living Writer Show will begin. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the music as much as I have enjoyed playing it for you today. I will now leave you with the most fitting song to wrap up a show. It is by Miss Alison Krauss and Miss Jillian. It is called I'll Fly Away. Enjoy, everyone.
Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm very pleased to have in the studio Lincoln Hall. Welcome, Lincoln. It's a pleasure to be with you, T. Well, thanks for saying that. We'll see how it goes, right? <laughs> May it be a good hour. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Um, Lincoln is in town, uh, and this is, I should say, uh, right from the get-go, that uh, this is this is a taped show, uh, June 3rd, and Lincoln's in town reading from his eighth book, Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. Um, and now, as is tradition, I'll just start us off with your bio, Lincoln, if that's, if that's all right with you. Yes, just don't let it take up the whole hour. <laughs> I just have a few pages here to read. <laughs> Actually, that's probably not far from the truth, but folks can go and find out more at your website, www.lincolnhall.net, so, and find out tons more. But here we have a shortened version. Lincoln Hall remains the only person to be declared dead so high on Everest and live to tell the tale. He is one of Australia's best-known mountaineers with a climbing career that spans three decades. He is the author of seven books, including the bestseller, White Limbo, which chronicled the first Australian ascent of Mount Everest in 1984. Hall, who has worked as a trekking guide and edited adventure magazines, is also a director of the Australian Himalayan Foundation. He was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 1987 for his services to mountaineering. He lives in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, Australia, with his wife and their two teenage sons. Again, you can find out more uh, at lincolnhall.net. Dead Lucky is his eighth book. And I checked out your website, Lincoln. Mm. And on it, it says, Lincoln Hall, writer, adventurer, and speaker. Was that, is, was that your listing? Did you choose those three identifiers? Uh, well, I guess subconsciously. I can't actually remember because I put that up there quite some time ago. But it, is, it, perhaps, it probably is actually because what I find as a mountaineer uh, is that people think I have uh, a great story but they, there's no sort of reference to how it's told. I mean, there's no sort of literary acknowledgement. And uh, uh, so I find that, yeah, so I find that annoying really um and i i know that uh, well i mean i have written fiction as well i have one published novel but um which one is that that's not blood on the lotus is it or it uh, is blood on the lotus okay. yeah yeah but uh the the thing about mountaineering is really uh, you don't have to uh um invent dramatic situations the dramatic situations are there and the emotions are there and the responses of people are there and uh writing those things accurately those aspects accurately is is a big challenge uh and quite often in mountaineering books they are left out because uh a lot of the i guess motivation and uh emotions uh are left out of mountaineering books because the those particular mountaineers are actually just uh, writing a kind of uh, genre which I call what I did on my holidays. <laughs> uh, uh, whereas I try to do a lot more than that. I mean, that's because I make writing as a big part of my life. Yeah, and and also part of it is as well the fact that in Australia, surfing... No, not surfing. Uh, we can bring surfing into it. In a okay. 
<laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, I was just putting the uh, mountain before the molehill, um, right. or the, the waves before the shore. Uh, I'm not sure which. Uh, but no, in Australia, uh, mountaineering is a bit like surfing in sub- Siberia. That's what I was trying to say. It's not, um, you know, so you can't like... Uh, if I were to write surfing books, people would understand that. Uh, uh, it wouldn't be quite so exotic. Uh, well, that's <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Well, exactly, that's right. But it's it's. Um, but the point is that because uh, the because people aren't familiar with mountaineering, I have to explain everything, and you don't want to say now this is a pitten and it's made of steel and it's got a little hole in the end there where you click a carabiner which is like a link thing which you know you don't want to say all that because that's that's sort of textbook type dictatorial or not dictatorial uh, didactic uh, and um you know it's so you've got to somehow explain the equipment without it being interrupting the narrative and uh and the same with the dangers well, who do you, so? Wait, I think who who do you imagine when you're writing when you were writing Dead Lucky as your who is your audience? Because you're talking about like what sort of level of technical detail to include because you don't want to lose people. But are you also would you also have mountaineers as a great percentage of who actually buys your book or? Um, or do you imagine that it's sort of the, a lay per- it's someone, it's a surfer who's got his summer reading or her summer reading uh, book tucked under their arm or someone in an airport who picks your book up to read and so that's who you're, you're, you're writing it for or, or is there um, a, a purposeful, <laughs> yeah, a, a purposeful inclusion so that you know that mountaineers are also reading these books? Who are you writing it for? Women. <laughs> Glamorous, <laughs> glorious women. <laughs> well, um, uh, th- but actually, in fact, my publis- my publicist back in Australia uh, th- felt that the I'd already written it by then, but I think it still works. Uh, was saying this is the kind of book that women will buy to give to their friends, oh, so you to, uh, or joking. their boyfriends. Oh, okay. No, well, I, I'm always joking, but. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, so I think that uh, uh, that's probably a good way to go, particularly with this book, because, I mean, well, I guess I've got my broader audience, which does encompass mountaineers. Um, I, I mean, I have a... Well, I'm one of, <laughs> I was going to say I'm the preeminent uh, mountaineering writer in Australia, but that doesn't take much to be that, um, because there aren't, there's only there's no one else that's written more than one book as far as I can remember. But um, so you've got that sewn up. I've got that sewn up, yeah. But uh, and I have written biographies of other climbers. It's not just my Sue Fear, it, for example. Yeah, it's like, but she's not a what I. That's not a what I did on my holidays type story. No. That's a very different story. But um, so. Yeah, but I think I do try and write to to a large audience, and I think particularly with Dead Lucky, because, uh, well, obviously it involved climbing, but the the you know when I died, uh, well, let's just let's just set up set up the uh, yes set up the, the the scene, and the scene is that um, I guess. Everest hit the news uh, in the middle of May 2006 when a British climber, David Sharp, died. And uh, the news came out uh, 
from cowboys at base camp with a sat phone and um, a laptop. Uh, they The word got out that 40 people had marched past um, uh, David Sharp, who was up at 27,000 and a half, 27,500 feet, something like that. And... Uh, yeah, that 40 people had marched past him on the way to the summit and he was grasping at their, their uh, um, uh, what do you call those things, heels, yes. And um, uh, so that was the, that's what the Cowboys put out on the, on, uh, to the, onto the, the news waves. And because... Uh, Did, so people just ignored someone who was obviously sort of there dying, but just went along to continue to forge ahead to the summit? Well, no. No, <laughs> but you see, you've you've been sucked in by those cowboys with the satellite phones who put that forward. The fact that yes. I mean, one of the things about one, it's and one, that I trust you. <laughs> oh no, no. Well, good. That's very nice because we haven't known each other for very long. Exactly. But uh, no, the thing is, uh, what you know, it, it's this is what this is the the dynamic. This is the the, the message that got out like to the, the world. Like the sensationalism that kind of goes out quickly. Yes. Well, the fact that um, if you if you think of any disaster. Think of 9-11. Uh, you know, I remember 5,000 people were dead. I'm not saying that 3,000 or whatever it mm. eventually was is, is, is not considerable, but right. whatever disaster, either it's in the wrong place or, it's the, you know, there's details are wrong and often major details. And that's why journalists go to journalist school and learn how to do research and, and not just Google things or even worse, Wikipedia them. Um, but the Amen to that. Yeah. So it's, but that's the way the world's going. Information is so um, uh, disrespected. Because uh, it's I guess. O- omnipresent, isn't it? There's so much of it. But yes, it's yes, not it's, it's correct. Yes, usually yes. all of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. So anyway, so uh, to get back to the 14th of May. So yeah, what happens on the northeast ridge of Everest is that you're at. Uh, you know, you start climbing at midnight from the high camp at 27,000 feet. And the reason you do that is you have oh, 1,500, 1,600 feet of height gain to, to, to uh, conquer. No, conquer is not the right word, to, to, to deal with. But uh, you also have uh, a horizontal mile. And it's not like it's a smooth crested ridge. The ridge is actually covered with boulders and tors and it's really not, you don't walk along the crest of the ridge. Mm. You do in a few places, but, but mostly you're going along the side of it. And it's like going across the side of a, a roof. You know how roofing tiles are sort of stacked uh, sort of to shed the water? Well, the sort of the strata on the north face of Everest is sort of designed to shed climbers. It's sort of like that. But it's fairly easy angled, but you do have to pay attention. So, But it is a long, slow business. So that the climb, well, at least when I did it, from that high camp to the summit was nine hours. And, and so... Uh, in the in some of it in the dark, most then. of it in the dark. Yeah. Yes, because uh, uh, that's right, most of it in the dark. And so, David Sharp, who was alive on the fourteenth of May, having climbed somewhere near the summit and then descending and not being able to go any, any further than that point where he w- eventually died, he was beside the trail. There was another body there that had been there for ten years, and um, and people walked past him. Now the thing is that there's the climbers are generally warned 
of where the bodies are. I mean, expedition leaders say, well, you've got to watch out, there's going to be bodies here and don't freak out and that kind of thing. And um, uh, because it's good to understand the mountain. I mean, not you get you talk about other things. Not, you don't just talk about dead bodies. You talk about, well, there's a section at 28,000 feet that's going to involve this. Like the big st- second yeah. step. or the, Yeah, the yeah. second step. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's oh, actually, yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a bit, a bit uh, um, higher up, but okay. the uh, uh, so the the thing is that um, you know you, it's dark and you have a, a headlamp which has a a throw or a spread of the beam that's maybe two or three feet, and you're looking at where you put and your feet. And quite narrow, yes. Yeah, and you're told that there's bodies there, uh, that there's bodies along here somewhere, and suddenly you see one, and you just keep going because the other thing is you. I mean, nine hours to get to the summit, and then you've got to get down. You've got to get down as far as you can, because the further down you go, the better your chances are of surviving. So it's a very big day, the summit day. So there's always a pressure on t- of time, but there's also, you always have to pace yourself. So you're not stopping to look at, um, look at the flowers, of course there's no flowers, but you're not, you don't stop <laughs> but if to... if there were. You, 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 you wouldn't stop, just like you don't stop to look at the bodies, uh, because that's the idea is, is, is getting to the summit and getting back, or if you realise you're not going to make it, get out of there as quickly as possible. So that's the scenario. And, but uh, coming down via the same route uh, in the, I guess, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning is the time, maybe 12, that people are coming past there, and of course it's broad daylight, and uh, the um, so what happens then is that what happened then was people did some people realised that David Sharp was was alive, but he wasn't sort of saying, "Hey, wait, you know, wait for me" or anything like that. Because he had no energy. Well, he was point. more than that. Frozen. His legs were frozen solid; they were bent and frozen solid. And the reason they were frozen solid is because his body had no longer been able to keep him him warm. And the really extra- and it goes to protect like the organs, right? The warmth. Clusters around your vital the heart organs and, and the, your brain, yeah. the brain, okay. and and the strength of his, I guess an indi- indication of the strength of his will to survive. With his his legs were actually frozen solid, uh, that uh, uh, and yet he was still able to mumble. I don't know if anyone. There's a bit of dispute, not dispute, but unsurety about whether he said his name or he just grunted. But he certainly, he was so close to death that, uh, you know, uh, the, there's no way that he could have survived, I, I, I really believe. And the, just the final thing on that is that uh, at near the summit of Everest, uh, there's 30% of the oxygen you get at sea level. And effectively, your muscles are a third as powerful. So you're trying to lift a man that's three, you're trying to lift three men. And it's just not possible up there. And so people did realise he was alive on the way down, and uh, but not many people. And there was nothing. They tried to help him. Some of them, one of them, tried for two hours, and someone else tried for an hour. And uh, and then you have to continue down, or they they well, yeah, potentially well, could fact, have lost their well, lives. Yeah, one well. of those. One of those. There was a couple. There were two people who were, one was the leader of a Turkish expedition who realised after two hours that they had to get out of there. The other guy was ordered down after an hour by his expedition leader to say, "Because you've got to get down because you're running out of oxygen, you you won't make it." So he came down and he was shattered. He was in tears at the bottom of the mountain. So that that's ro- that's the real story of David Sharp. So and, and that's the way of setting a scene. And and Lincoln, thank you. We'll we'll take a short break now, and then we'll come back with Lincoln Hall today on Living Writers, his book Dead Lucky: Life After Death on Mount Everest.
Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, my name is T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor and Living Writers. Today in the studio, Lincoln Hall, with his eighth book, Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. And so, Lincoln, you're actually on a a book tour right now through the States. Mm -hmm. I imagine you've already done done your Australian book tour long yeah. ago because yes. the book was out a year earlier there right uh yes pretty yes. well okay mm. so but now you're you're hitting the u.s tour and let's see you've already been to some diff- new york city san francisco um colorado other places as well canada and then next you'll be heading out to chicago and seattle um and that'll wrap up your u.s tour yes i'll be yeah. i'll be away for five weeks which is quite a long time to be talking about oneself at length right, right. the great thing about a book is you write it once and then everybody can read it and you don't have to uh um keep telling the story well you, well yes except for the book tour part I guess. oh yes yes that, yes well that's different because you're talking to an educated audience Hopefully, knock on wood. <laughs> well, Lincoln, when we when we left uh, for the break, uh, you had been talking about uh, David Sharp's story and how uh, that gave uh, uh, gave your story uh, dramatic r- resonance. Yeah, it's hard. You don't even need to use the word dramatic in this framework because everything is just as a given. The drama is there. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the th- yeah, uh, but yeah. how to articulate it? Well, uh, well, it's well. Just telling it out how it is is enough in in some instances, but uh, in some parts of the the story, but other parts require a different approach. But in the the the, the reason that my story uh, resonates so so widely is because of the uh, understanding, the misunderstanding, as it turned out, of David Sharp's condition, where. Uh, people chose ambition over saving a fellow human being, whereas it wasn't like that. Uh, and so then, when 10 days later, um, I died, and uh, and then the next day, some people uh, found me sort of... Um, at dawn. At dawn, yes, having gone through the night, and uh, somehow, and... And then they immediately, they didn't even talk about it, they went into rescue mode, and rescue mode involved tying me to a nearby rope because because I had been left for dead, and therefore, if I was on the rope that the climbers used, I was obviously a, an obstruction. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so they tied me onto the rope, they tried to uh, establish my mental condition, which was... Uh, a bit misleading, really, because uh, I greeted them with the words, I imagine you're surprised to see me here. Wow, so lucid. <laughs> yes, yes, but, the, but that was witty. a facade. <laughs> yeah, that was a facade, really. But actually, it was, well, it was also indicative of where I was in my head. Um, yeah, but but anyway, the, the, rather than going into those details, the thing is that 
uh, that my the, that rescue and it was in fact Sherpas had brought me down to a certain point. It was only twenty eight thousand feet, but it was to a point where the climbers coming up were able to save me. It was a, there was a flat place, only a very small flat, about the size of this table here, and that um, the. Uh, so Which is like a right, like kind of like a large kitchen table. It's not very yes, large yes, at all. Yes, yes, okay, yes. just for the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, there were no pumpkins on it, unlike this one. But the um, uh, though I had hallucinations that could have had pumpkins in, but I didn't happen to have. We might be hearing those from from the bit but, that you read to us later. <laughs> yes, or maybe uh, Jesse will play some smashing pumpkins. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, the thing is that uh, the. Uh, there was the example of uh, those four climbers was exactly what everyone wanted. Everyone wanted the, re the response to be when someone's in trouble, which is basically um, uh, the priority of human life and and of uh, sacrificing the, their ambition uh, for the summit. Uh, so, um, no, sorry, sacrificing their ambition uh, to save my life. So that 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 was a, a fantastic. Uh, thing and the other thing was that um, the other part of it was that uh, I mean I had been declared dead and for could 20 you, could for you um, no I tell couldn't. me about that like, no <laughs> later on I can tell you about okay, that because they poked you in the eye too right that's pretty uh, drastic uh, but I guess yeah, you, if you're dead you're you yeah, know what does it matter yes yes that's right and uh, but anyway the thing is that the other the other I guess thing that that warmed people's hearts was the fact that I was dead for 20 hours. Well, no, I wasn't really. Uh, nice way to put it. <laughs> the thing that warmed people's hearts. <laughs> well, yes. No, but that's the good thing about clauses is you can put them together and get the opposite meaning. And uh, so the second clause is that, um, and it's not Santa, is that... <laughs> it's a writerly move. A writerly move. was Well, it was, was the fact that... Um, now I've completely lost it. Whenever I think of Santa, oh, I, no. <laughs> I, th I think of yak bells because Santa has bells and yaks have bells and yaks are a part of my story. Um, so where were we? Where were we? Let's see. Well, the, um, the first part of the clause, it was something to do when you have, let's see. Now I've lost it because I started <laughs> imagining yaks as well on the, on the trail. Um, well, let's see. It must have been something to do with um, if you're going to be declared dead... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I was hours, declared. It was war warmed people's hearts. Yes, yes. Uh, no, it's all right. I've got okay. it now. Okay. Thank you. The, uh, no problem. For 20 hours, my wife thought, and my kids thought, and my friends and everything thought I was dead. Now, for 12 hours of those, there was, I guess, adequate, not adequate, there was reasonable cause for that um, belief. Uh, but the 12 hours was when those four guys came and found me. But it took another eight hours for people back in Australia, or even yeah, to 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 be convinced that the reports that I that I was alive were uh, actually justified. True. Yeah, were true uh, because because of the misinformation about David Sharp, and just because uh, uh, you know there are. 11 people 12 people died up there 11 once i sat up and um so the uh you know i mean if someone else could have sat up and then instead of me or maybe there was someone who, who was thought dead who wasn't and so you don't the last thing you want is false hope and so there was 20 hours there and so ultimately uh i managed to survive the night and the reason i survived the night was because i uh, wanted to get back to my family and that sounds a bit sort of um 
uh, almost cheesy, but it certainly wasn't. It was, <laughs> I'd still be up there if it wasn't for them uh, because it was so easy to die. It would have been, well, I'd already done it and got over it, so obviously it's easy to die. So, um, and uh, I mean, this my story is scattered with near-death experiences. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like the coyote, you know, in, the, in Roadrunner. Uh, so. Right. <laughs> Wiley. <laughs> yes, Wiley, yeah. So it was so in your hallucinations uh, from that time were you did you have pictures of your family and uh, because how like, do you mean well, in my pocket or oh no no in the when you were um when you were imagining and and when you were alone there and you said what saved you was the idea your love of your family wanting to get back to them so were those part of the hallucinations that the, your family was sort of in your mind and that well, sustained you? Well, no, um, it was quite different. What happened was um, the climb to the summit went perfectly well. It couldn't have gone better, in fact. Uh, nine o'clock in the morning, I was standing on the summit, perfect weather. The photo's beautiful in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that helps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And it also, it also supports my story. But uh, the... Uh, yeah, so so everything was going well, but then only a hundred feet or so, two hundred feet below the summit, uh, I was stricken with cerebral edema. Now, cerebral edema, I mean, happens in various medical conditions, but at uh, altitude edema, um, well, edema at high altitude, cerebral edema at high altitude, uh, is is so severe that it, it puts extraordinary pressure on your brain that basically you go crazy. Now. Unfortunately, I mean, I've rescued with someone with cerebral edema, so I know what they're like. They're aggressively uncooperative. They just want to sit in the snow muttering nonsense. You've got to try, to try and to move them. Well, there's another... On that occasion, there was another climber with us, and so we were able to help one on either side, like a drunk guy that you take to, the, to his car or put him in the gutter or wherever you want to, you know. I mean, <laughs> it was really hard to carry someone who doesn't want to be carried. And so... But, I mean, I wasn't displaying the... Um, the not wanting to be carried. I, I, I wanted to go back up the mountain. Apparently, there were three black women up there that, that, wanted, to, that I wanted to meet. And, um, and, and then I was trying to jump off the Kanchung face. Now, the Kanchung face is actually the, the highest place you can jump off uh, in, 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 in the world, really, because it's, ver- it's vertical drop-off. So you get a fair bit of momentum. So if you do that, you, you, know, you get in the Guinness Book of Records, <laughs> except you need to have those guys up there who are judges. And, um, right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, so I was doing that, and I was also pulling my oxygen mask off. I've climbed a lot of mountains, a lot of high mountains, but I've never used an oxygen mask before. And uh, so here we were, here I was, just totally, uh, we have an expression in Australia called off my scone, which means uh, just totally lost it. And, and unfortunately, I burnt all the energy which I'd kept in reserve to descend. So at 28,000 feet, I could no longer... Well, Pemba, I wanted to say something to Pemba. I had the words all lined up, but I couldn't actually speak. That's how exhausted I was. I was just lying there, motionless, unable to speak, with the word, wanting to say something, but couldn't speak. So that's where I was. Because you had used up that um, third of the ener- the muscles, had that third of the energy. You said uh, if they were functioning at full capacity at that altitude, and then... No, it was more than the fact I was dead, yeah. Because you'd worn it all, all the energy uh, in your I, body down. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I wasn't quite dead then, but um, 
uh, but Pembus, talking to him afterwards, uh, he saw I was just lying there in the snow, glazed eyes, uh, staring up towards the summit, and um, it just happened to be where I was lying. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean the thing with the cerebral edema, it, it it basically kills you. That's what happens. Okay. Mm. Well, that's a cheerful breaking point. We'll we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Living Writers uh, today. We're lucky to have Lincoln Hall here in the studio with his book. Dead Lucky. We'll be right back. When I got back home, I found a message on the door. Sweet Regina's got to China, cross-legged on the floor. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, we have Lincoln Hall. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Jesse Johnston, who just uh, got his PhD. And uh, Jesse's going to be doing some traveling, um, some world traveling coming up here. So our engineer will be leaving uh, his, uh, his engineering post for a while, but he may be back. Um, but anyway, Jesse Johnston, doctor. <laughs> All right, so Lincoln, um, thanks for allowing me that moment. Um, Lincoln Hall, um, reading from Dead Lucky, Life After Death on Mount Everest. That's what we've got in store for you, you all, right now. Do you have a place, Lincoln, That because we just talked about, we kind of left everyone at the moment where uh, it was, you appeared 
you appeared dead and you had no energy to move. Yes, that's that's uh, yeah, that's right. And in fact, what happened there was <laughs> well, that was where I died, and well, that's where I was declared dead anyway. And the uh, the situation was that two of the Sherpas with me, uh, one of them was injured uh, and snowblind. Uh, so he went down with uh, Dorji, who was, uh, well, in relatively good shape. Uh, staying with him were Lakshya and Dawa. Staying with me were Lakshya and Dawa. And they, I was just lying there in the snow. And um, Lakshya, uh, you know, well, they, one of them, you know, they tried to feel my pulse. They were looking for my pulse and then they couldn't feel it anymore. And then they couldn't um, sense any breath or see any breath any evidence of breath uh, coming from me and then one of them poked me in the eye which, which, uh, to which I didn't respond either and then they were there and they were radio con uh, contact with the expedition leader who was 7,000 feet lower down and um, he said to cover you with rocks too uh, well yes but first of all he suggested that they go down to save themselves and that their last chore would be to cover me with rocks now luckily there were no rocks with which I could be covered because that would have been the finish then you would have been a marker up there yes I wouldn't have had the and that would have been inconvenient because people <laughs> like to stop at that spot because it's flat there and um yeah. That would have been inconvenient <laughs> of you, Lincoln. Well, for others, actually. I'm thinking of others now. Once you're dead, you might as well think of others. <laughs> well, it's obviously changed you. Maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can. But um, It's also in the book, though, so people can yeah, read Yeah, and it. so what happened... Uh, well, obviously, there was something that... Um, the issue of death is, is, is quite a, a big topic. But, but uh, anyway, sometime during that night, because the reason they left, it was 7 p.m., and the, the, the expedition leader said get out of there so they did and and i remember the, the, the admiring the sunset and then the fading light and i'll just um re i uh and then and then i had an hallucin a hallucin a hallucination that involved um someone that didn't exist it was total i mean it may have been someone who had existed once but he wasn't certainly wasn't in the real world now because i was the only person well there are other bodies up there but there was no one alive so i was having an, a, a hallucination uh, uh, an interaction with this man and we communicated though neither of us said anything um i was just um ag agreeing to what pemba had said which is that i needed to stay there where i was and the reason pemba was saying that because it was actually a safe place because it was flat and um but pemba hadn't realized that I was then dying, uh, but so so this man appeared to make ensure that I kept my promise to Pemba that I would stay there. And the way that we secured this deal was that I showed him my socks, bowled up into a ball. Now I'm not quite sure what that means, but it, you know this is the way my my brain was behaving. And uh, so I'll just read a little bit after uh, after he had vanished. He turned around and just sort of disappeared into the, well, not quite the smoke, but he was gone, and I was very aware that I was alone. Alone again, I realised, now I'm reading, alone again, I realised how cold I was, and even though I was, even though I was wearing my down suit, I decided to revisit the room with a fire. Now, that sounds a bit odd, but I'd also encountered a, 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 a secret entrance into the mountain where there were people sitting around, chuck, you know, um joking and sitting around the fire and of course that didn't exist so uh but but i i couldn't find the way back in boulders blocked the way i so i scrambled over them and onto the roof of the building it wasn't a building it was just the mountain 
I lay on rough-hewn slabs, hoping there would be some heat transmitted through the rock from the fire inside, but everything remained as cold as ice. There was no joy to be had here. Dusk was upon me, so I scrambled back along the path that I had originally followed. My socks were no longer there. I returned to the spot where I had, to, had sat to watch the end of the day. There were no colours now, only whiteness swallowing the grey shapes of the mountains across the empty valley. I thought of setting up camp, but my pack was gone. In it had been my oxygen, my thermos, my two headlamps, my spare gloves, my ice axe and my Australian flag. The whiteness came even closer. Soon the only things that were there were the narrow ledge I sat upon and the grey tooth of rock against which I rested my back. I thought about climbing the, the tooth, but it was only five or six feet high. But where would that take me? I sat there. I sat where I was and thought about how simple life is when there are absolutely no options. I lay down among the shards with my knees brought up to my chest and my hands in my groin. I felt the need to rest, rest in peace. Darkness was not far away. Snow began to fall. So... Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So... So you in the, the the forward of the book, you talk about working with someone to sort of piece together what happened, like you, in, into a dictaphone, right? And then working with someone um, yes. who would ask you questions to sort of uh, get a, like try to because how how much of this was a clear memory to you, or how how did you, or did you have to write it well, in order to sort of have access it again? Well, no, I guess the thing was that, um, well, my, my agent, Margaret G., her, her husband, uh, Brent Waters, was a professor of psychiatry and uh, semi-retired, but uh, anyway, he offered to try and help me put together the pieces and maybe unearth some of the things that I, that I, I couldn't remember. And it was incredibly confronting because these hallucinations were so real uh, i didn't know what was i mean actually even when i got back to back to Kathmandu, i was still trying to track down three westerners who i'd come down the mountain with who ne who were never actually there even though i talked to them all the way down so i mean you know my, that's where my brain was that's where my mind was and uh so yeah brent um I sort of told my whole story to Brent, and uh, and in that um, were uh, that did help me. I did remember a few things, but the I guess the uh, the main thing that uh, about the hallucinations is that um, they were so vivid, and that's why they are. It was so important to include them in the book. Uh, and I had a lot of trouble initially because I thought people just aren't going to believe this. And, and ultimately I thought, well, I just have to tell it how I experienced it and, and the, the truth of it will come through. And I think that's what's ultimately happened. So trying to write it as, as sort of clearly and plainly in a way as you could allowed for, for the, the story to come, to the through line of the story to come Yes, that's that's right, and it's uh, uh, it it was it's very difficult when I'm drifting in and out of hallucinations, and uh, so it was actually a very challenging part of of the book to write, and 
I really enjoyed that challenge, particularly when I was felt I was getting on top of it. And it was it was certainly a part of the book I kept coming back to, because I'd get more insights as I thought about it more, as more pieces fell together. Because really, I was um, the publishers were very keen to get the book out as quickly as possible. So uh, that was my life from the time I, you know, I mean, the expedition didn't really finish until I finished the book, really, because that was what my my healing and my piecing together the pieces for my own benefit as well as for writing that was my whole existence but um yeah wow yeah. that's that's something because that's a, that's that's a kind of a something that you surmounted as well because in one way it might be a defense to try and take a break from it like to to heal do the physical things necessary to heal um in the book you say there's uh, is it hyperbaric chamber hyperbaric chamber and yeah. uh, like a, a couple of times a week and you'd have well, to was, sit there or uh, yeah well, what it was it was a hyperbaric chamber which people divers go into when they get the bends but the, uh, <clears throat> the in my case uh i was in the a, a chamber um pressurized chamber with cancer sufferers actually who had wounds that wouldn't heal you know they had cancers and then raw sort of wounds Mm. uh and in my case it it was to try and uh, minimize the or maximize the regeneration of my damaged fingers and so it was two hours a day five days a week for a month and uh so that was (laughs) that was an interesting time but uh yeah so there was a lot going on but but it kept you in that 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 world well, it, uh, yeah, as you yes said. but it also took me out of that world because those ca- those people like there was a woman oh, who had a right. uh, had a palate missing I mean it can cancer of the palate and if and if that didn't heal well she was going to die basically so I don't know what exactly happened but she had this amazing sense of sp- it's this amazing spirit and so it wasn't it was uh, it wasn't only me that that was facing I had faced adversity I was the lucky one and so that part of it did did help you actually in the healing process. Whereas yeah. the writing and trying to recreate um, uh, the the story was, I mean, that kind well, of that, kept that, you in the well, experience. Well, that helped me because if I hadn't um, if I hadn't had the story to write, if I hadn't had the book to write, I would have just sat there. Uh, feeling sorry for myself and watching video after video or something I imagine <laughs> uh, but you know but it, so and I have a friend actually who lost 30% of each of his feet uh, to frostbite on one on the third highest mountain in the world Kanchenjunga and went on to climb the sixth highest mountains without oxygen Mo- the the remaining five cl- climbs without that part of his feet he had to work again well learn to walk again but he also um he got addicted to painkillers. He did exactly that. Just sat there in his room, mm-hmm. crawling because he couldn't walk. When he wanted to get crawl to the fridge, you know that kind of thing. So he was, you know, it's uh, it can be a very depressing place. But for me, it wasn't. I mean, my family were there, and I'd achieved what I'd wanted to to achieve in terms of getting back to them. And uh, and in fact, getting the family aspect is is very strong in the book because yes. not only because they were my motivator well and in fact in fact perhaps uh, had i not died maybe they wouldn't have played such a a bigger place but i've actually structured the book with it opens with me and my family and then there's a um then there's a we go on a trek to everest base camp and yes and there's there's other things about the family along the way and so, uh, and we meet my sister at the airport. She plays a role in one of the hallucinations, and certainly when I'm believed dead, she 
goes being a lawyer and very she just went into well basically she she uh, <laughs> um, found got the uh, life insurance from from my from my Barbara my wife and and activated it so that created problems later on oh no <laughs> well hold, we'll we'll come we'll come back we'll take a short break Lincoln um, you're listening to living writers uh, today Lincoln Hall dead lucky life after death on Mount Everest on WCBN FM Ann Arbor oh 